<clears throat> well, the imagination is an amazing, incredible thing, is it not? You can be in one place doing one thing, not want to be there, and imagine you are somewhere completely different. You know where that is for me. I've mentioned it to you before. It would be on a sunny beach somewhere, enjoying God's wonderful creation. And sometimes we may do something like this. People may do something like this where they imagine a different scenario when they are suffering or in pain. One of my favorite movies is Life is Beautiful, which is set in a concentration camp at Auschwitz. And the main character of the story is a man named Guido who has a wonderful sense of humor. He is filled with optimism, even in the midst of finding himself in a concentration camp under Nazi rule. He and his family are there. His little son, about this tall, is there. And so in order to get through it, in order to help his son get through this horrific situation, he plays a game with his son. He, he tells them, this is all a game. And so we have to do certain things to, to gain points, and we, if we do certain things, we lose points. Like if we complain that we're cold, or if we're hungry, you lose points for those things. But there are ways you can gain things. In one of the, in one of the last scenes, they play their final game, where Guido, the dad, tells the son, we're playing hide-and-seek now. And he, he puts his son in a what looks to be a metal mailbox of some sort with a little peak hole out. And he makes believe that we're playing hide-and-seek even as the dad is being walked off to be murdered by a Nazi soldier. He looks at his son peeking out of the peephole and winks at him and continues playfully so that the kid and his imagination can escape this horrible situation. It is a beautiful story. Well, some have claimed that we Christians are guilty of something of that very same nature. That we are filled with fear of the world around us. That in order to make sense of the challenges that we face, the trials that we face, in order to face death itself, we have entered into a land of make-believe. So that somehow we can escape the fears that we face in this world. I talked with a man, a friend, just this past week who said he believes religion is made up. He wasn't being disrespectful. He was simply, we were having a good conversation. He believes religion's made up because to keep younger people under control and to give hope and comfort to those who are suffering and about to face death. Well, what do we say to that? Do, what, what do we say to these charges? Have we simply entered a land of make-believe to make us feel better? This man even suggested that there were benefits to religion, that he wishes that he had a sort of faith because he knows it makes you healthy, it makes you happier in life. There's research that has shown those things. And I, I gently insisted to him, all those health benefits, they're nice, but if it's not true then it's completely worthless. And so I stand before you this morning proclaiming to you that our hope is not in vain. That Jesus claimed certain things and his claims are absolutely true. This is not a fairy tale so that we can take comfort in our suffering, 
so that we can face death expecting something on the other side. Everything that we read in Scripture, everything that Jesus has told us is true. And that is why we can have hope in this life and the life to come. If it's not true, there's no hope. But if it's true, we have all the hope in the world. Because of who Jesus is and what he has said and who he has claimed to be, because of the truth of these things, we can face fear with hope. In fact, we can be set free from fear in this life, particularly fear of judgment and fear of death. The main theme of our text this morning is that Jesus testifies to himself. He's giving a testimony about who he is and what he does. He testifies, in fact, that he has the authority to work the works of God particularly relating to making alive and to giving judgment. The reasons why he's doing this is because the Jews have been offended at him. Remember, in our last passage, Jesus healed a man who had been suffering for 38 years. He told the man, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And what did he do? Exactly what Jesus commanded. In his speaking, the thing was accomplished. But this frustrated the Jews because the man was carrying his mat on the Sabbath, something they said, that's not allowed. You're breaking the rules. And Jesus is telling people to break our rules of the Sabbath, and that is problematic. Well, Jesus defends himself by saying, God himself, my own father is working on the Sabbath, and I'm working too. Thus making himself equal with God. So the Jews sought to kill him all the more because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was making himself equal to God. So what does Jesus do in that situation? Okay, just calm down, Jewish leaders. Calm down. I'm not technically breaking the Sabbath day. You See, you misunderstood what the Scripture was te- teaching. He could have calmed things down a little bit, right? He doesn't do that. And what we see in verses 19 through 47 He actually intensifies his argument that he is equal to the Father, that the works that he does are equal to the Father, that he has the same authority that the Father himself has. He doesn't diffuse the conflict. He rather speaks the truth all the more clearly and boldly. And that's what we have this morning in our passage, 19 through actually verse 30. If you look at This long discourse of Jesus, he is defending himself in verses 19 through the end of the chapter, uh, verse 47. In 19 through 30, our passage for today, Jesus is testifying to himself that he has the same authority that the Father has. That he has, in fact, the authority to give life and he has the authority to to weigh the scales, to, to judge those who have done good and those who have done bad. And then what we see in the rest of the chapter, verses 31 to 47, is Jesus showing, he doesn't just testify to himself, because if you just testify to yourself, well, that's, that's only so convincing. But in fact, he has others who give witness to him. God himself gives testimony that Jesus is who he says he is. John the Baptist gives this testimony. The works that Jesus does gives testimony to who he is. And Moses, the very one the Jews were looking to, he gives testimony that Jesus is who he says he is. 
but I don't want to steal my thunder for next week. But our, our passage for this morning then is Jesus giving testimony to the very works that he does. Testimony to himself that he has authority to do these things. So I want us to consider then Jesus' work in he, the healings that he's done, but also greater works that the Father will show him. So first I want us to see in verses 19 through 23 the cooperative nature of Jesus' work. He's claiming that he has an authority equal with God, that he is not doing things separate from God, but that he's actually working in cooperation with the Father. You see this phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, this is uh, an evidence that he is giving testimony. This is, it's all throughout the book of John, Jesus saying this phrase, truly, truly, I tell you, one speaking with authority and giving testimony to the truth. He says several things about his cooperation with the Father. First, he speaks of his own submission to the Father. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus' works, the works that he's doing that are upsetting the Jews, he's simply doing what he sees the Father do. He's not doing anything opposed to the Father or different from the Father. He's simply, simply following his Father in this. And there's a mutuality to it. Right? The Son looks to the Father to see what the Father's doing. And the Father willingly and gladly shows the Son what He is doing. There's this, this relationship within the Godhead where the Father is showing the Son what to do and the Son is following in joy what the Father has for Him to do. Uh, his showing the Son what He's doing is bound up in His love for the Son. The Father and Son are in this love relationship this relationship which is grounded in love for one another well what is it that the son is doing greater works uh, verse 20 look uh, greater works than these than these works that he's doing the healings that he's doing on the sabbath the works that you jews have seen well greater works than these the father will show the son so that you will be amazed you're upset now? You're amazed now at what I'm doing, at the claims that I'm making? Here he intensifies his argument, his defense even more. You're going to be amazed at these greater works the Father will show the Son. These works are raising the dead and exercising judgment. Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father makes alive those who are dead. So the picture here is those who are dead being made alive. This is what the Father does, Jesus says. And just like the Father does it, the Son does it also. Only he adds in this aspect, aspect of his own volition. He gives life to whomever he wills. There's a sovereignty involved in the sons giving life we all the jews would acknowledge the sovereignty of the father of god to do whatever he wishes the son here is claiming that same volition that same will he makes alive whomever he wills we stand in awe at the son who gives life at his own choosing 
And, the re, uh, and not only does he, he give life to whom he wills, but he also has been given judgment from the Father. You see that in verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That's interesting. The Father then has delegated this particular role to the Son to judge, to judge all. He's given all judgment to the Son. Now we remember uh, chapter 3, verse, I believe, 17, where the Son was not sent to condemn the world, not sent to judge the world. That speaks of purpose. And yet we see here the result of what actually happens. Although it wasn't the purpose that the Son would come to judge, because of man's rejection of the Son, they come under judgment. And therefore the, ju- the Son judges them. The reason this has been given to the Son was that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So we see some similarities. We see some things that they share in common. And we also see some differences. The Son has the same authority and volition to make alive those who are dead. And yet he has uh, been given this special responsibility of exercising judgment over all, something the Father has given him. And we also see this honor which is due to the Father and Son. He is equal in the honor that he is owed. So he is claiming yet again this this exalted authority. Because he has the same authority as the Father, he deserves the same honor of the Father. Perhaps one way we could illustrate this idea of the cooperation between the Father and Son would be that of an apprenticeship. An apprentice does nothing that his mentor, his master, doesn't tell him to do, doesn't show him how to do. Rather, he follows his mentor in all things. I've recently taken up woodworking, and I am I'm at the level below an apprentice. I'm, I'm no good at it. I mess things up all the time. Well, I bought a certain tool from a guy locally who's actually nationally known for his woodworking skill and teaching these things. So I bought this. It was a very inexpensive tool, but he still took the time to show me how to use it, how to sharpen it. And so he, he took the tool and he showed me how he was sharpening it, moving it back and forth against the steel. And then another step, there were, I think, three steps in sharpening this particular st- tool. He showed me and then he said, now you do it. And so he let me move into his place and I did exactly what I saw him doing. It was it was a cooperation. It was a learning how to do this thing. It was an apprenticeship type of relationship. Well, I say it could somewhat illustrate this because it's not a one-to-one correlation, right? I'm totally inferior to this woodworker who, who knows how to do everything, who has skill in everything woodworking. And yet the father and son, one is not inferior to the other. They are equal in authority and they are equal in deserving deserving honor from all those that they have created, and yet they have differing roles. And the, the Son has willingly submitted Himself to the Father to do only that which the Father has shown Him what to do. Well, this gives us help in several ways. Just understanding the fact that the Son and the Father are in cooperation with one another. It gives us something of an understanding about how the Trinity works, how our Trinitarian God works. We are monotheists. We believe in one God, 
Just like the, the Shema of the Old Testament, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet we believe in what is called the Trinity. Three distinct persons, fully God, working together in this relationship of love, grounded in love, fulfilling the purposes of God himself. And so it gives us an idea of thinking about how the Trinity works. Sometimes we have, uh, people have thought that God is opposed to himself, that the Father wants one thing and the Son wants something else, that they might say, if you look at the Old Testament, it looks like the Father is all about judging people. And then they may view the New Testament. Well, the New Testament then is all about grace. And yet we understand from this and other passages that the will of the Father and Son, our Spirit and Spirit, are all together working as one for particular purposes to show His faithfulness, to display His glory, to display His power that we might worship this one Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the God we worship. It informs us in how we ought to worship and how we ought to think about our God. It also moves us to worship, as Jason was speaking earlier. It moves us to, to stand in awe of the greatness of our God. Who would come up with something such as this? No human can come up with this. He is beyond our comprehension. He is beyond description. He is worthy of all honor and praise. The Father is worthy of our worship the Son is worthy of our worship, and the Spirit is worthy of our worship. Jesus is not working in opposition to the Father. Everything he does is bound up in their shared purpose for his glory and the salvation of his people. But notice also not only this cooperative nature of Jesus' work, notice its particular effect in this present age. Verses 24 to 27. Its particular effect in this present age. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, the present age, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who who here will live. Now verses 26 and 27 explain why the Son has this life to be able to give and why He has the authority to exercise judgment. Notice that He has the authority to give life, to make alive, because as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. In other words, He's not dependent on anyone else for his life. They are, not, they are not contingent, as Jason said, on anything else. They have life in themselves. Now this might throw you, though, that the Father has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Well, that is what we confess when we confess the Nicene Creed together. In that creed, we say with Christians throughout history, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. He has life in himself from all eternity, just as the Father has life in himself. And therefore, he can make alive. He has made us alive in creation, 
And he has the power to give us that which is truly life now that we had fallen. But he also has uh, authority to exercise judgment, verse 27. And the reason given is because he is son of man. That's kind of ambiguous. Is he saying that he has judgment because he is a human son of man? Or is he pointing back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where the one like the Son of Man is given dominion for all eternity over this kingdom and all who all will worship him? I, I tend to think it's kind of both. As, as one who is human, God has granted him the authority to judge. He has the right to judge other humans, does he not? He has given this authority to the Son, but also He has been granted it as the one who will sit on the throne forever. He has the right to give life, and He has the right to exercise judgment. We'll look now back at what this means for the present age. Verses 24 and following. Whoever hears my word and believes, so that is the condition, one who hears and then trusts in Jesus and the one who sent him, in other words, the one who believes that Jesus is who he said he is, sent from the Father, the Messiah, to save his people from their sins, has eternal life. Present tense. You who have heard the word of Jesus and trusted in him, you have eternal life. But not only do you have eternal life, you do not come under judgment. And not only do you not come under judgment, but you have passed from death to life. I cannot get over these phrases. You presently have eternal life, brother or sister. There is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. There is no judgment that will come upon you. You have already passed from death into life because the Son of God has spoken and raised you from the dead. This is a current, present, spiritual reality. He says, The time will come and is now when those who are dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will come to life. They will live. It's amazing how a sound or a voice just even in in the natural course of things, can kind of awaken you to life. As an example, this morning, it was early this morning, probably 4 o'clock or so, I'm just guessing, I was laying in bed completely dead asleep, and I hear this. Do you think I'm awake at that moment? Oh boy, I'm awake, alive, like I am alert, to everything around me, and I sit for a few minutes and I think, okay, what am I going to do? What was that? Who was that? And I'm not exactly sure who or what it was, but I think it was my dream (laughs) that woke me up. In my dream, I was upstairs, and I was expecting Rachel home at any time when I hear five knocks on the door, and it wakes me. It wakes me immediately. I'm awake. brings me to life. One show that I've mentioned our family really likes to watch is Little House on the Prairie. And there's an episode which is very frightening and uh, filled with, with sorrow and despair. The littlest daughter 
uh, Claire, I believe, fell down a mine. And they couldn't hear her speaking anymore. They couldn't hear her voice. They, they had stuck a pipe down, and the mother, Carolyn, was listening. Where is my daughter? I can't hear her. Time and time passed where they were ultimately despairing, and Carolyn was in the scene. She was face down on the ground, her face in the dirt, despairing that she had lost her little daughter until she hears a voice the voice of of her husband Charles calling her. And it's not a voice of despair, of losing hope. It's It's a voice of hope. It's a voice of joy. And she hears her voice and lifts her head and sees Charles coming to her with her little child in arms. And she is awoken to life and to joy and to hope. Well, as illustrative as those things are, as we use those as analogies, that is not exactly the same thing as we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is even more wonderful, even more joyful, even more mysterious and beyond our comprehension that we were dead in our sins and transgressions, that we were spiritually dead to God. Ephesians 2 talks about how we were dead. We were slaves to sin and the prince of the power of this world. We were slaves to sin. We could do nothing else. We were unable to please God. We were unable to make a step towards God. We were unable to do anything that would make him pleased with us. And then the voice of the Son of God spoke and we were raised to new life. I mentioned in a previous week that I've never heard the audible voice of God before. But I have spiritually heard the voice of the Son of God. When he spoke his word of gospel, of good news to me, I was raised to life. And you were too. When you heard the preaching of the gospel, when you heard that you were dead in your sins and transgressions, when you heard that Jesus died for sinners and you knew you were a sinner, you knew you were beyond hope in yourself. When you heard that, when you heard the gospel go forth, the Spirit came with it. The voice of the Son of God came with it. And something snapped. Something sparked in your heart. The Holy Spirit of God made you alive. This is the age in which we live. That God is doing this through the proclamation of the gospel. As my audible voice goes forth with the good news of the gospel, as your audible voice goes forth to others who don't know Jesus, the voice of the Son of God is calling. And He is what will be effective. Not you and your testimony necessarily, not your wittiness, not your uh, apologetics, not your ingenuity at sharing the gospel, but the voice of the Son of God makes alive. And then what happens is that person has eternal life. No judgment will come upon them. And this is a wonder beyond all wonders. You have passed from death into life. We speak about people passing away when they die. It's language we use to sound a little softer and show some compassion. It's it's okay to use that terminology. We talk about passing away. Those who think that they're speaking or communing with the dead talk about crossing over into whatever they think is next. What's interesting, isn't isn't it, this phrase that Jesus uses. 
you have already passed away, Christian. You have passed away not out of life into death. You have passed out of death into life. And therefore, there is no need to fear death because you've already conquered it. Or rather, Jesus has conquered it and granted it to you. You do well to spend some time this afternoon just mulling that over in your mind. What does it mean that I have passed out of death and into life? Well, this frees us from fear. It's one thing it does. It frees us from the fear that we face in this life. What fears are you facing right now? What trials are you facing? What sorrows are you facing? What, what are you afraid of? I was reminded just the other day as we come upon Martin Luther King Day that he died when he was 39 years old. I'm 40 years old. And I thought, any one of us might die at any moment or Jesus might return. Is that a fearful thing for you to face death. Well, if you were in Christ, it need not be. Those in Christ have passed from death into life. It frees us from fear. Not only from fear, it also frees us to, to work, to live for the glory of God. It frees us to worship God. It frees us because we have, no longer have the judgment of God hanging over us and we no longer have the fear of death hanging over us. And if we no longer have the fear of death and judgment hanging over us, what more could we fear? Are those not the greatest terrors we could possibly face? And then our, our trials in this life take on a different, we take a different perspective towards them. If God has rescued us from the greatest dangers we could ever face, why wouldn't He also rescue us and preserve us and care for us in the midst of smaller fears? and terrors. There are great terrors in this world. Maybe we fear that we will get cancer or Alzheimer's. Maybe we fear broken relationships. There are terrible things in this world. But when you recognize that God in Jesus Christ has overcome them through his own death and resurrection, you can face those fears knowing and trusting in him to preserve you. What does it say in Romans chapter 8 at the end? What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Do you know? What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing, he says. Nothing at all. For God is with us. For God gave us his own Son. For God himself justifies us and will not bring a charge against us. Jesus Christ will not condemn us, for he has died for us and been raised. He's at the right hand of God, interceding for us at this very moment. Death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is objective truth. You may not feel it subjectively, 
in your sufferings, in your trials, you may feel like God has removed his love from you, that something, that trial, that difficulty, that fear has separated you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And yet this assures you that that is not the case. It is objectively true. You can bank on it. And that is what grounds now your assurance that he loves you. That's what grounds your subjective feelings. Right? You submit those subjective feelings about being separated from the love of God with this objective truth that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The effect of Jesus' work in this present age is unbelievable. You have passed out of death and into life, but there's more. As Landon said earlier, there's more. There's more joy for you, brothers and sisters, from this passage. We see its effect in the age to come. Verses 28 and 29. Now he uses this phrase again, the hour is coming, but he doesn't use the, the second phrase that he used the first time, and is now here. So now he's speaking about a future reality. We had, he had spoken about what is the case right now, what are the effects of the Son's works now, and now he speaks of what are the effects of the Son's work in the age to come. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Who is it that will hear the voice of the Son of God in the future? He says it is all those who are in the tombs. And some will come out for a resurrection of life and others will come to a resurrection of of judgment. I remember seeing a news article not long ago about, I believe it was in Australia, where there was some strange glow all around. It's, it would be as if we, we looked outside and there was this green glow all over the place. Everything had a green hue to it. And what happened as that took place was that everybody walked outside. Everybody came out of their doors and were standing at their, their doorways and wondering what is going on. I remember in my neighborhood, we had a, a fire truck come late one night. It was in the middle of the night. No sirens there were there, but the lights were flashing. And I, so what did we all do? We all walked outside the door to see what's going on. We, we all responded to this, this exterior thing that was happening. Well, consider what he says here, the, the Son. There, there's coming a time when all will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will come out of the tomb. Everybody. Everybody. They will respond to the voice of the Son of God. How, how does a dead person hear the voice of the Son of God. Well, we're going to see that in future chapters as we look at Lazarus. As Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus had been dead for four days. He had no hearing. He wasn't able to hear. And yet the very voice of the Son of God made him hear. And he stood up and he came forth. 
Jesus is speaking of a day in the future. We don't know when the Son will return. But he's speaking of that great day of the Lord, when he will return. Could be, I was telling my children, it could be this afternoon. He could be tonight. When the voice of the Son of God peals forth, and we will hear it. We will hear him call forth. And all those in the tombs will come forth. We, we, I've often thought of the resurrection from the dead speaking just of the righteous. But here is a picture of the righteous and the wicked all having some sort of resurrection body. We speak of eternal life. And if we simply mean life enduring for all eternity, well, everybody has eternal life in that sense, do they not? We will have physical, glorified bodies. We will have bodies which will exist for all eternity whether you're good or bad, whether you're in Christ or you're not in Christ. That's an amazing reality to think of. The good, that's what he says, those who do good to life and those who do bad to a resurrection of judgment. Well, how do we make sense of this? It sounds like works-based salvation, doesn't it? Have you done good? Well, I've done some good, but maybe I've done more bad than good. So does that mean I will be going to the resurrection of the judgment? May it never be. Well, we've already seen he's speaking of those who hear his voice and who believe in him, who trust in him. And if we go back to a previous passage also, uh, chapter 3, verse 21, we see something else. Chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. For whoever does what is wicked, whoever does wicked things, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by or in God. Ideas. You've got to get the order right, you've got to get things in the right order. So the preaching of the gospel goes forth. The voice of the Son of God goes forth. He gives life. He makes alive. He justifies those who are alive in Him, who He has regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They begin walking out what it means to be a Christian. They begin walking out according to the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, the, God is doing stuff in them and in their lives. The fruit of the Spirit is being worked out, wrought in them, and they have good works, which glorify God and show that they indeed have been justified by His grace. If you get the order mixed up, then you get it all messed up. You mess up everything. It's like if you're baking a cake. If I were to bake a cake, just from my own memory, I'm sure I would mess it up. Because I would get all the order wrong and it would be terrible. It would be a waste. It would be worthless. It would be useless. You've got to get the order right. And the, the order, we've already been to Romans chapter 8 once. But go back there and consider this. We see in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. Predestined, again, speaks to the volition of God himself in making a life. Those whom he predestined, he also called. He, he converts them, he changes them, he regenerates them. And those whom he called, he also justified them. He declared them righteous in his sight because of the work done by Jesus Christ for them. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He's glorifying us even now. If In the book of Ephesians, it is said that we are already, in some mysterious sense, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What does that mean? Well, it at least means that we have life in Him and that we are with Him now, that we are, in a sense, glorified with Him even now. Well, I said that there was more because our hope as Christians is not simply that we would be made spiritually alive, but that our bodies would also have life. This is, this is the good news of the resurrection to life. On that last day, if you have died, we, we may have all died by then. On that last day, we will hear the Son of God. We will hear His voice and we will come forth and we will be in glorified bodies. We, we weren't meant to spend eternity spiritually, simply as spirits floating around worshiping Him, but as embodied spirits, our spirits who had been with Jesus uh, since we had died will then be reunited with our bodies and we will worship Him physically. I think of, I think of a particular song, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And one of the verses in particular sticks out to me, thinking about this resurrection body. It doesn't get it quite right with the resurrection body, but I still love it. He says, When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Do you ever feel like you, you, you aren't able to express your praise to God with your own voice right now? Maybe you feel like you don't have a good singing voice. And you sing off key or you, you mess up the lyrics, you mess up the words, you, you sing off tune and it irritates you so that makes you not sing. When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. When we are resurrected on the last day, you will sing of his glory in a way that you had never sung before. I dare say you will not sing off key or out of tune or the wrong lyrics. You will sing like you have never imagined. But not only will you sing out of a real voice box, out of your physical body, you will also see Jesus face to face with eyes. With your physical ears, you will hear him speak to you. You will hear his voice. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of anything you've done, but because of his work for you that counts for you. And not only will you see him and hear him and sing his praises, you will be able to touch him. You will perhaps hold his hand or you will embrace him in a big hug, in a warm, 
affectionate hug. This is the hope that we have, brothers and sisters, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is who he said he is. Because in his defense of his work, he has proclaimed, he has authority over life and judgment. And if you have trusted in him, you have passed from death to life. You have the hope, you have the present reality of peace with God, and you have the future hope and reality of being physically in his presence for all eternity. Is that good news, brothers and sisters? You have no need to fear the trials of this life or suffering or even death or judgment because Jesus is who he says he is. Let's pray together.